0: I'm really excited and honored today to have Shauna here, a professor at the University of Arizona Law School, and we're going to be talking a bit about international human rights, why it's worthwhile to invest in these institutions, the U of A's collaboration with the Water Protector Legal Collective. Shauna, do you want to quickly introduce yourself and say what you think is most important for the Radio Cachimbona listeners to know?
1: Hi, my name is Shawna Howard, I'm a professor of practice here at the University of Arizona College of Law, Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program, and I teach International Human Rights and Indigenous Peoples, and I'm the director of the International Human Rights Advocacy Workshop, which I'd like to talk more about today, the projects that we're working on, particularly with the Water Protectors Legal Collective.
0: Cool. So how did that collaboration start with the Water Protector Legal Collective?
1: One of our doctoral law students is actually a founding member of the Water Protector Legal Collective. Um, We'll refer to them as the WPLC, which provides on-the-ground legal assistance Mm -hmm. to those water protectors, they like to be called, that were resisting the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. And so she was there during the resistance and formed a collective of lawyers who were able to provide criminal defense and other legal assistance to the water protectors. So she approached our program, the IPLP program, with some of the other board members and asked for us to develop an international human rights strategy to support the work that they were doing domestically with Mm -hmm. criminal defense and also bringing a civil class action claim.
0: So I think initiatives like this are really important within the realm of human rights because historically human rights in the way that we know them today has been the U.S. and other westernized countries creating these entities by which they then judge former colonial countries and tell them about the human rights abuses that they've created and then it's ironic because The U.S. is very rarely held accountable for its own human rights violations. And I think with the Trump administration and with his kind of more explicit throwing away of any kind of human rights investment from the United States, there has been kind of more of a light shown on the United States and its human rights abuses. Yeah,
1: in fact, I've seen the international community respond with great interest to issues involving the United States Mm -hmm. lately. So we had a hearing before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights Mm -hmm. in May, and those hearings are very difficult to get because you have NGOs from all throughout the Americas requesting a hearing, and so I think that that shows that they see this issue of criminalization of indigenous human rights defenders as a very urgent and unfolding situation.
0: Can you speak a little bit more about that, about the criminalization of protests? And do you think that the criminalization of the protesters was infringing on on their freedom of expression?
1: Since Standing Rock, we've seen a proliferation of anti-protest bills throughout Mm -hmm. the United States. And in fact, there's been statements by government officials who are introducing these bills known as critical infrastructure bills oh, wow. that this is being done in response to Standing Rock because they don't want to have a situation like that unfold again so they're just going to shut it down by criminalizing protest in certain ways the by
0: critical infrastructure is the pipeline the <laughs>
1: critical infrastructure is the pipeline <laughs> okay. um, you know it's it differs <laughs> it differs depending on the state and how they define it but if people that are resisting these projects tamper in any way with an existing pipeline or a pipeline that's under construction. They've heightened the, the criminal penalties. Um, they've even tried to introduce laws that prevent people from protesting by gathering in certain numbers. Uh, they've introduced legislation that allows people to essentially drive over protesters. So <gasps> it's very extreme, like what happened with Heather Heyer yeah. mm-hmm. at, Char- at Charlottesville. So it's very concerning to see that this is happening and that it's happening in response to Standing Rock, and that it's essentially targeting indigenous human rights defenders who are really at the forefront of this movement.
0: Yeah. It feels like property rights are being prioritized over human rights in this situation. Exactly.
1: And as you said, the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens to assemble and free speech rights. Mm-hmm.
0: And also, I want to clarify that the majority of protesters were nonviolent, right? Because I think exactly. a common Fox News refrain might be that you won't get criminalized if you don't do anything that is worth getting you in trouble, that if you don't commit any wrong acts, then you don't have to worry about being arrested and criminalized. But in the situation, actually, these folks were peaceably protesting right right
1: they were peacefully gathered and in many instances they were engaged in prayer and ceremony and then the response from law enforcement was so disproportionate to what was happening at the time the sort of militarized response where they came in with Mm -hmm. riot gear and tanks and you've seen the images yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think that's also why it's really important to have this international human rights perspective because the criminalization of protest and to think back to what's happening in Tucson, the criminalization of humanitarian aid Mm -hmm. are things that are happening globally and the proliferation of militarized arms are also it's something that's happening worldwide mm-hmm. among police forces.
1: Yeah, yeah, so when when we took on this project, the the timing of it was really interesting because they asked us to engage with the United Nations or other international human rights bodies and Immediately after, we saw the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples put out a call for input because she was doing a report on the criminalization of Indigenous human rights defenders worldwide. Mm. And what prompted her to investigate the situation was her being targeted by her own government. She's Filipino. Oh, wow. So Duterte put her on a list wow. as a terrorist. Wow. This is a UN expert who's working for the United Nations being Mm -hmm. targeted. So there's been a lot of attention given to this issue. So we submitted a report to her. Uh, We convened an expert panel at the United Nations Permanent Forum On the Rights of, sorry, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues in New York in April of last year. And we had a number of experts from the UN and from the African Commission talking about how this is a global problem, as well as people who were at Standing Rock, uh, Indigenous women activists, talking about their personal experience there. Wow, that's really powerful.
0: So you mentioned that a lot of the protesters were engaging in prayer, and that made me think about how in many of these infrastructure projects, they are building over what Indigenous folks consider to be sacred land. Historically, in your work in doing Indigenous rights, has that been a common trend?
1: Yeah, so in the case of Standing Rock, there was a sacred burial ground that was identified. Oftentimes, indigenous communities don't want to reveal that information, Mm -hmm. so it's a really difficult situation because in order to protect it, sometimes they have to reveal its location. But in this case, when they did, the contractors came in and bulldozed the burial ground the very next day. And so that was one of the incidents that led to a mass arrest. But I think the, the problem here is often that the sacred areas that need to be protected fall outside of the formally recognized boundaries, in this case of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Mm -hmm. And so under international human rights law, indigenous peoples still have rights to those territories that they traditionally used and occupied and that continue to have meaning for them. Mm -hmm. They also have a right to religious freedom and expression, Mm -hmm. just like any other religious group would. But oftentimes it's very difficult for courts or for government to understand what that means.
0: Yeah. I think that's why it's the imagery that we see often of indigeneity in mainstream cultural media is so problematic because I think it, it creates this kind of mysticism, or uh, this, like, false mysticism, mysticism around the religion of indigenous folks and then makes it, I think, easier for the judiciary to disregard their beliefs as, like, legitimate religious beliefs in the way that we treat mm-hmm. Christianity.
1: Right. Yeah, there's very few protections in the United States. There are a number of laws or regulations which are intended to protect indigenous people's sacred sites, but most of them can't really be enforced. I think it's interesting that the current administration has put together this commission on inalienable rights and so what oh, they're heard about this. Um, attempting to do is define human rights according to the laws of nature as in god's law
0: oh, and no. so
1: it comes from you know this place yeah. of defining it according to the Christian belief system. Mm -hmm. And so, again, how do indigenous peoples' peoples spirituality and cosmovision fit into this if they're going to redefine what human rights are?
0: Right. That's really troubling to think of that completion. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we've touched on this specifically, but in the report that you did put out with the Water Protector Legal Collective, what was the specific ask in the report to the rapporteur? And then for folks who might not know, what role does the rapporteur for indigenous rights play?
1: So the rapporteur on the rights of indigenous peoples is a special procedure of the Human Rights Council. And so, their mandate is to investigate human rights allegations that are submitted to the Rapporteur from indigenous communities, so they can look into specific situations, but also overall country conditions, and they report back to the Human Rights Council. And so, for example, in this case, they identified a thematic issue being the criminalization Of indigenous human rights defenders. So as I mentioned we submitted a report to her and then we also submitted a report to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights Mm -hmm. who was doing a joint report with the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights on criminalization of human rights defenders in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And so We're also preparing something for the universal periodic review, which is a mechanism under the Human Rights Council, where the Human Rights Council considers the overall human rights records of all of the member states, Mm. and the United States (laughs) is up for review in May, and Mm -hmm. so we want to let them know about the situation on criminalization of human rights defenders. And so what we're asking the the United Nations and the Inter-American Commission to do is urge the United States to... To review the criminal proceedings against the Dakota Access water protectors, to have convictions set aside, and to exonerate political prisoners where people were arrested without probable cause, to convene a truth commission, to investigate and punish and provide reparations for these violations in respect to the Dakota Access water protectors, and also to look at the activities of energy companies and private security. So this isn't just focused on the law enforcement officers right. working for the government. Right. Um, so that's specifically with respect to Standing Rock. We're also, also asking more broadly for the US to adopt a framework to monitor and report on the corporate conduct and human rights accountability of energy companies, investors, and private security firms and other non-state actors. So this doesn't happen in the future and to provide training for law enforcement and private security on managing peaceful protests, on the right to free expression and assembly, and on indigenous people's rights Mm -hmm. under international law. Uh, To implement national measures in compliance with national and international standards to protect indigenous people's rights to free expression and assembly, and then also to look at this trend that's happening with states that are introducing these anti-protests and critical infrastructure bills that violate the right to free speech and assembly, and then finally to ensure that their states and local governments don't abuse emergency powers in the context of peaceful demonstrations. Mm. So there's quite a number of requests there. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes, I love all of them. You might be wondering what emergency powers Shauna is referring to here. As a frequent critic of government overreach, I thought it was really important to break this down for y'all. On August 19th, the North Dakota governor, Jack Dalrymple, no idea how how to pronounce his name, who served as an advisor to Donald Trump's presidential campaign, declared a state of emergency at Standing Room, and he cited concerns about harsh weather conditions, and he cited the North Dakota Disaster Act of 1985 as the justification for his authority to do this. And he said that he ordered that all people who were at the North Dakota Pipeline encampment protesting needed to leave the evacuation area immediately and were further ordered not to return to that evacuation area. This is an example of executive overreach because it's clearly a stretch to Utilize the North Dakota Disaster Act, which the purpose of it, as stated in the law itself, is to reduce reduce vulnerability of people and communities of this state to damage injury and loss of life and property in the resulting from natural man-made disasters or emergencies, threats to homeland security or hostile military or paramilitary action. I would hope that the vulnerability of the protesters and their personhood and their inherent human rights would be prioritized over the property rights, which are mentioned here, of the oil pipeline. But that was not the case in North Dakota. The National Guard mobilized three weeks later after Donald Trump ordered them to do so And on September 30th, that was when security, on September 3rd, sorry, that was when security contractors turned dogs on the protesters. I wanted to highlight this portion of the law that we're talking about here because moments like these are very scary. When we allow a member of the executive branch, whether that be of a state or the federal executive branch to suspend constitutional rights that should otherwise be upheld, we should all be paying attention. You also mentioned the private security forces and you mentioned corporate accountability. Based on my understanding, during the enforcement of the protest actions, there were both private security forces and South Dakota police involved in arresting folks. Why is it troubling that a private security force would be working in conjunction with local law enforcement?
1: Well, there's not those same types of checks and balances over their behavior. It's not regulated in the same way. They're not held accountable in the Mm -hmm. same way that government officials would be. And in this case, There were allegations that private security forces were working in conjunction with law enforcement and even directing them at times, and we saw a lot of the very serious abuses come from these private security firms, including one company that provided the dogs for the dog attacks. That was a bad answer.
0: I mean, I think that, no, I think that that makes sense. the benefit of having international human rights bodies like the UN or like the Inter-American Human Rights Commission condemn the US government's response to pipeline activism as opposed to resolving these disputes within the US system or within tribal courts for example?
1: in many cases the domestic law isn't adequate Mm -hmm. to address these concerns and that's where international human rights law comes in where the standards are higher Mm -hmm. so you can say that well the world doesn't agree with what the state is doing Mm -hmm. and so there's The application of higher standards when domestic standards fall short, although if you want to file a formal complaint before an international body, you first have to exhaust your domestic remedies. And so that's another reason why you may approach an international body is because you've done all you can, Mm -hmm. you've gone all the way up to the US Supreme Court, or if you can show that domestic remedies would be futile and they don't adequately protect the rights of the victims. The other reason why is to sort of shine light on the situation and visibility mm-hmm. and have international monitoring that can prevent future abuses if they know that the world is watching.
0: Yeah. Can you also lay out the charges that people had made, were that were made against them, and also the convictions that came about uh, as part of their activism?
1: So in total, 841 water protectors wow. were arrested. Mm-hmm. Yeah for rioting, trespass, and other offenses. And most of these charges should never have been brought or continue because of lack of evidence and witnesses, lack of probable cause, and legal defenses of privilege and lawful conduct. So out of the state court charges, 392 of them were dismissed, 42 were acquitted, 188 agreed to accept diversion, so they were dismissed, Mm -hmm. and then 146 accepted plea agreements, which involved no jail time. 26 were convicted, and two of those served jail time, and there's still 40 court cases that are inactive and two that are open cases. But the most serious charges in federal court were brought against five indigenous water protectors. One of those accepted a non-cooperating plea agreement and is serving 57 months in prison. Wow. The other four federal defendants were each charged with the use of fire to commit a federal felony and civil disorder, and they also accepted non-cooperating plea agreements to the civil disorder charge, and that was to avoid a harsher sentence of up to 15 years in prison. Wow. A non-cooperative plea
0: agreement is a plea agreement that can be undertaken to reduce the number of years that you face in your charge and it's a deal where you don't have to provide any evidence or information against your co-defendants. This is a really cool type of plea agreement because it shows that the defendants are in solidarity with fellow activists. So the Water Protector Legal Collective activists who took non-cooperative plea agreements were standing in solidarity with their fellow activists. And you mentioned that one of the asks was exoneration. How would that occur? What would the mechanism be for that? It's just a request, right? And like, there's no... It's, it's
1: like how Trump pardons Joe think. It
0: would just be a request because that's kind of the limitation of international human rights bodies, right? That because of state sovereignty, we can't, for, a judgment can't be forced
1: on a country. Right, it's a recommendation that's coming from the international community. It comes with sort of the pressure of...
0: The pressure of public health. I heard a lot of stories of indigenous folks being from Guatemala being displaced because of the building of hydroelectric dams and I was trying to find country conditions evidence to corroborate that. Mm -hmm. And There was one article from the Guardian written in 2015 and that was about it. (laughs) And I say that because Like you said, there's corporations all over who are plunging forward and are wanting to build the infrastructure projects that they have laid out in their profit margin. And we don't hear about all of those. And I think that it's important to realize what role we can play also as media consumers, what we care about, and what we pay attention to.
1: That's great. great. Present evidence in court on country conditions. It doesn't just have to be like the State Department's analysis
0: of it. Oh yeah, no, and the State Department analysis is oftentimes very much lacking, so that's why it's really important that these NGOs, like Human Rights Watch, put out these reports so that there can be kind of... A more balanced perspective.
1: But don't you think the UN reports have more weight? Like the country reports? Yeah, I do, Mm. I do. And I don't know if they know where to find them. Like, do they know what the UPR is and all the treaty bodies that could weigh in on it and the different special procedures? Like, there's so much there to use.
0: Yeah, I think we definitely don't know how to find those. Aware that that exists, don't know how to find it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, most people don't know about international human rights and where to find information.
0: What role do political demonstrations play in the fight for human rights?
1: I think sometimes there's no other course of action. Mm -hmm. When the state mechanisms have failed, when you have powerful interests at stake, like oil companies, when indigenous peoples in particular have been disadvantaged as far as the legal mechanisms that are available to them and the court decisions that have been issued not in their favor. Mm -hmm. They're really left with no other choice Mm -hmm. but to peacefully demonstrate Mm -hmm. in these situations.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight because I think the opposing side's viewpoint is that there are already these political mechanisms in place that we're supposed to use to solve our problems like we're supposed to vote Mm -hmm. if we want our elected officials to make different decisions but that analysis doesn't take into account that there are people who are marginalized from these political mechanisms like formerly incarcerated people like immigrants I think it's really beautiful when people who are alienated from the traditional mechanisms that we might use to uplift our voices mm-hmm. don't give up and instead they just say well I I have a message to send and I'm going to send it anyway through this means that's really the only way that I know how I
1: come in and teach in my class <laughs> <laughs> <That'd be awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> what made you
0: want to be a clinical professor and one of human rights law in particular?
1: I wasn't really intending on becoming a professor. I guess I'm a professor of practice which means that I also practice law and that's really what drew me to this work was being able to make a difference. I initially went to law school because I wanted to do policy work Mm -hmm. and I had a degree in environmental studies and environmental law and I'm not an indigenous person Mm -hmm. myself. I I just really felt like I needed to do something, Mm -hmm. and that's what brought me to the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program, because it really is the best program in the world in terms of not just learning federal Indian law, but also international human rights and indigenous peoples, and so at the time James Anaya was here, he's one of the co-founders of the program, and he's the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He served two terms, and he wrote the book on international human rights and indigenous peoples law, and in fact argued most of the cases which now form the foundation of jurisprudence in this area. IPLP has worked on the case of the Maya indigenous communities in Belize, which is a groundbreaking case in terms of implementation. So they received a decision from the highest court in Belize saying that Maya people do have rights to the lands that they've traditionally historically occupied. And so now they're in the phase of implementing those rights with the government and getting formal legal title, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah, um, wow. And it's really That's meaningful cool. for mm-hmm. them. So. They're looking at developing laws around free, prior, and informed consent, national laws. So that's also very groundbreaking. Mm
0: -hmm. How did they convince Belize to do that? It took,
1: uh, (laughs) let's see, 20 years of litigation. So (laughs) I was involved in the last 10 years, and I think we had five decisions from the courts in Belize, and then it went to the Caribbean Court of Justice. Mm. So it was a struggle, but I, I think that their success is really due to the solidarity of the people sticking together.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You need that if you're gonna sustain a 20 year fight.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program and then the work that they were doing on these types of cases and really having an impact and not just being a theoretical exercise, but getting directly involved in the advocacy work. And so now the clinic that I teach The students are directly involved in these cases before the United Nations and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights.
0: That's very exciting. How does one develop a case like that? Is it like impact litigation where you find your ideal plate No,
1: (laughs) definitely not. No, we don't go issue shopping. (laughs) These cases have all evolved because of relationships that were formed back when James Anaya was with the program. So the Belize case, he began that back in 1996. That's why I say 20 years. And we respond to requests from Tribal governments from NGOs that okay. are seeking assistance.
0: And how has the is it the IPL program?
1: IPLP, yeah.
0: IPLP, oh. and the last P is program.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> policy. Sorry, the last P is policy. Okay. Yeah.
0: So the IPLP program, how does it decide what its priorities are going to be when there are, I'm sure, more requests than you all have capacity to take on?
1: We prioritize requests based on who is approaching us, and so we want to work with representatives from tribal governments, and Mm -hmm. so we're working with the Navajo Nation right now on their efforts to protect the San Francisco peak because they're using... Effluent, uh, sewage effluent to produce artificial wastewater at the Snowball Ski Resort. And what that's happening this? on their sacred mountain. Okay. So they've been, this is an example of where human rights law comes into play because they went all the way up to the Supreme Court and they didn't, they refused to hear the case. And the Ninth Circuit had said that this is not a violation of their free exercise of religion. Wow. And so that's what so are you supposed to do with that? Right. Yeah. So the, we're before the Inter American Commission on that case right now. So preference given to the Navajo Nation Council mm-hmm. coming to us versus an individual member of a community. I see. Yeah.
0: You are looking for highest impact.
1: Right. And and also making sure that we are working with the real, rep- true representatives of a community. Right. That, that there's sense. consensus on that, the tribal council re- resolution.
0: That makes sense. Can you explain what exactly is happening with San Francisco Peak? with the San
1: Francisco Peaks? So the San Francisco Peaks is actually the highest peak in Arizona, in northern Arizona, outside of Flagstaff, and it's a sacred area to 13 different Indigenous communities in the region. Mm -hmm. And there's been a number of Indigenous communities, including the Navajo Nation, the Hopi, who've been litigating this case since the 70s on different legal grounds. So they've argued that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act Mm -hmm. applies to them in this situation, just like it would if sewage effluent was being poured on a church or a mosque or in this analogous situation mm-hmm. it's their sacred mountain mm-hmm. so they weren't successful with that claim they've argued environmental laws most recently the Hopi nation it was before the state court who rejected their claim of public nuisance, saying they didn't suffer any special harm over and above what hikers would. So they've exhausted their domestic remedies, we're arguing, and now pursuing a claim before the Inter-American Commission and invoking the American Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man, which states that individuals, and in this case, indigenous communities have a right to religion. This, this is an example again of trying to protect an area that's outside the reservation boundaries and that's on public lands.
0: Speak on why it would it's problematic in the first place to rely on reservation boundaries?
1: Well those boundaries are often imposed on religious communities and don't reflect the actual historical usage and meaning that the land has for them.
0: Can you speak on the potential long lasting effects of the usage of the San Francisco peaks?
1: I thought you were going to say on the, what impact this decision would have on indigenous law and policy.
0: Okay, you answer that first, and then we can go back to the environmental.
1: The question. impact on the San Francisco peaks. I'm well, just has
0: been going on since the 70s. I'm just wondering, like, what level of degradation are we talking about?
1: So it's, it's not really about the degradation of the physical elements Uh, of the mountain itself because you know the state their argument is that well it's only five percent of the mountain and they still have access to the other ninety five percent it's about the sort of psychological aspect of what that means and we had the Medicine Men's Association sort of explain in their terms the significance of the mountain to their identity to their whole concept of who they are as Navajo people, which was very difficult for them to do, to sort of translate those concepts into words that a court could understand Mm -hmm. and into English. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there are some impacts in terms of collecting sacred items that would be ruined by the sewage that's being sprayed on the mountain, but it's more just about how it changes that whole ability to exercise their religion and yeah
0: yeah I understand completely and I think that image of sewage being spilled on a church is perfect imagery for people to understand how severe this is hmm so those are all the questions that I had I don't know if you had Anything you felt we didn't get to touch on? Oh, wait, yes. The effect the, the effect. on oh, yeah. indigenous law and policy that this decision might have.
1: So I think that there's really a sort of vacuum in terms of judicial decisions, both domestically and internationally, on indigenous people's religious rights. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important for these institutions to weigh in on this and say that indigenous people's right to religion is equal to other non-indigenous religions like Christianity. And it's really, it baffles me why they can make this distinction and not provide equal protection to indigenous people's rights. And I can't think of a more blatant example than dumping sewage on a sacred area.
0: I'm surprised too that there hasn't been any body that's weighed in on this because I feel like this has been the issue This tension between indigenous religious beliefs and property rights, I feel like, can describe a lot of situations. So I'm surprised that there hasn't been, well, I guess domestic courts have weighed in and said RIFRA doesn't apply. Right. But why hasn't this been a priority for human rights?
1: I think that most of the international cases involving indigenous people's rights have focused on land and resources resource rights mm-hmm. because that's an urgent situation yeah. and it's the, sort of the priority well if you are being dispossessed and relocated or if your lands are being flooded or you have an oil company coming in and there's this myri- these myriad of problems that result in that the first thing they need to do is to secure rights to the lands and ensure that they can protect against third party invasions and incursions and then after that maybe we can look at their religious rights although in the work that we've done we always try to include that yeah um, I was gonna say, but i feel
0: like it's a play
1: so a far yeah not a lot of attention has been given to that
0: well i hope to see some good law on that in the future yes me too <laughs> is there anything else that you wanted to add i think so okay well thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i hope that we can work together again in the future thank you thank
1: <laughs> you for the work you do Bye, everyone.